Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host. Today, deep in the darkest time of the year here in the north, we're going to dive into the flamboyant color of one plant family, orchids, and the way they have shaped human science, art, fashion, and more. In her new book, Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession and Fifteen Flowers, Erica Hanekel surveys four centuries and more than a dozen countries to unveil the fascinating, intertwined histories of people and orchids. In the process, she creates a collage of notable characters ranging from Charles Darwin to Frida Kahlo, all motivated by what she calls orchid delirium. Erica Hanekel is a professor of environmental history at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin. She's a master gardener and writes regularly for Orchids magazine. Congratulations on the new book, Erica, and welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you so much, Doug. It's lovely to be here. So, Erica, your first book uh, called Empire of Vines was about the history of wine culture in America. And now you've uh, moved on to (laughs) Orchids. Why now a book about orchids? What drew you to them and their history? Well, I have loved gardening outdoors and indoors um, for my entire life. Um, And I'm an environmental historian and environmental historians sort of usually do kind of big sweeping changes. You you get sort of big tomes on um, massive kind of planetary shifts sometimes. But my real interest is sort of the human cultural connection with plants and with foodstuffs. And so that's kind of the through line between my two books. Um, But additionally, with this book, um, I am an orchid lover and an orchid grower myself. I have about 150 orchids um, in my home right now. And before people freak out about that, uh, most of them actually are teacup sized. They're quite small. um, So I can fit them on sort of growing carts with lights and this is kind of what northern northern orchid growers and indoor plant lovers do um, at this time of year. Um, orchids have really been a way for me to garden in the winter, which I think is kind of their biggest joy, usually. I'm originally from California. I went to the University of Iowa for grad school, and that's where I kind of discovered orchids and the total joy of getting something to bloom (laughs) in winter Um, and then moved to Northern Wisconsin um, up on Lake Superior and my collection grew. And I think, I think the enduring thing for me about them is that they come in such a multitude of forms and colors. Like you said, I think the thing that really transports me though, is that so many of them are also fragrant. 
not many of them are fragrant that you can buy at sort of, you know, your local grocery store. But if you search for species, which are quite widely available from reputable sellers in America, um, you can get something to bloom that smells like daffodils or roses um, or bananas or coconut, you know, at different times of year. Um, so that's kind of the orchid side of the story. The the history side of the story, or perhaps the muses side of the story, um, kind of comes in because as a fan of orchids and as a historian and as a cultural historian, over the years, I've really read everything that I could possibly find about human stories about their connection to orchids. And what that has meant is that, you know, Orchid history has really long been dominated by stories of European exploration and extraction um, from Brazilian jungles or African savannas or you know other other places, and those are very interesting stories. But sometimes you know after you read enough of them, they sort of become one note because at base it is about colonialism, it is about um, extraction for a wealthy marketplace that is halfway around the world in a completely different environment. Um, and so I wondered where all the other stories were about all the other people on the planet, Native people, women, people of color, people of different classes, because orchids don't necessarily and haven't been throughout history only associated with the very rich. Um, and so I kept looking for that book and I kept looking for that book and I couldn't find it. And then it hit me one day, oh, I need to write that book. I guess I should really write that book. <laughs> and uh, it, it became, you know, the, the most fun project that I've ever worked on in my life. So when we add diverse people to an inquiry into orchids, it turns out that the stories get a lot more diverse as well, um, that those two things kind of go hand in hand. And so you brought up Frida Kahlo and, you know, that, that was one of the first chapters that I wrote because I had had the question in my head for quite a long time. Um, you know, Frida Kahlo only paints one major orchid in, in really any of her works of art. And yet she's an artist who included native Mexican flora in almost everything she did. It just wasn't orchids. So her canvases are just alive with beautiful flowers of all kinds um, that grew throughout Mexico um, in her life. And sort of asking that question, like why this painting and why this one orchid in this one painting, you, you kind of find out that she uses that orchid to represent the pain of the loss of a much wanted pregnancy um, and that it was it, it became very clear to me that orchids were fraught for her in a way that other flowers might not have been um, you know but if we if we kind of span the globe too um, Chinese Empress Cixi um, in the mid 19th century really uses orchids to sort of hold the power of the imperial throne um, and definitely as part of her imperial trend setting and and proving to men who had only ever held the throne before her that that she could do it as well and she did it very well for many decades um 
So there's lots and lots of stories like that, that sort of come out of the woodwork once you start asking the, the sort of combined question of like an interesting sort of people and what is their connection to orchids and sort of how can we tell through history. We're going to dig into some of those fascinating stories of people and their connections with orchids as we go along here today. Uh, First of all, I want to reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes. And today I'm talking with environmental historian and author Erica Hanekel about her new book, Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession in 15 Flowers. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. I know we have gardeners out there and orchid lovers and people who (laughs) would uh, love to talk with Erica Hanekel, not only about uh, growing orchids, but about the larger cultural significance of orchids and the stories they tell. So um, let's establish a little bit more of a baseline for folks, Erica, first of all, who might not be super familiar with orchids. However, um, give us an overview of this family of flowers, what they look like, where they're found, and what's unique about them. Great. So the orchid family is huge and very diverse. I think the first thing I think about is um, that orchids grow on every single continent except Antarctica. So that tells you about their diversity, their resilience. Um, It's the second largest plant family on earth. The first is Asteraceae or basically the daisy family as we would know it. Um, So that means that there are roughly 30,000 known orchid species. That's about four times the number of mammal species on earth, I believe. So, I mean, just in one plant family, you're, you're getting many, many times <laughs> larger than, than most other um, types of living things on earth. So within that, if we talk to, start to talk about sort of like pegs on the scale of diversity, there are more than 800 distinct genera of orchids. So genera is really the rank right above species. So if species is a specific orchid, then you can sort of put them in kind of a, a, a family classification. And so still, if you just make that one jump, there's still more than 800 of those genera. Um, and I'll say, you know, orchid lovers, after they grow, you know, they'll usually start and sort of grow a smattering of almost everything. And then they'll kind of like probably lose a lot of orchids because you you kind of can't keep everything alive all the time. Um, And so a lot of people start to kind of focus in on a handful of genera that really do well um, when they're growing them in their own homes. So on the scientific end, what makes an orchid an orchid is really the fusion of what's thought of as the male portion of the flower, really the stamen and the female portion or the pistil into one structure which is called the column. So nearly all orchids have a column which is both male and female in um, its construction. It has a very thin layer of sort of tissue between those two things. Orchids don't love to self-pollinate but they will self-pollinate if that um, if that sort of tissue is, is disturbed or moved. And so 
I think what's also interesting about this orchid story in a larger cultural sense is that humans throughout history have seen sort of human male and female parts of an orchid. Like if you look at an orchid, some of the structures start to look like human sexual reproductive parts. Um, but because of the column, like scientifically, if we were to lay human sexuality on top of that, you know, in fact, what we would call it would actually be intersex. Orchids would be intersex if we apply, if we applied a sort of human frame um, to the plant world through that. And then in terms of how they appear, orchids um, have always have three petals and three sepals. And most orchids will sort of have them in a kind of, in a, in a triangular formation. And then if you can imagine an inverted triangle on top of that triangle. So you have sort of have six pieces. Some orchids have two of those petals fused or a petal that is um, sort of more prominent or um, uh, kind of adapted for something else. And so a lot of orchids will have something called a, a modified labellum or lip that kind of like comes out the bottom of the orchid that makes usually a very nice landing space um, for their pollinators, whether it be a bee or a moth or, or anything else. Um, I think the other thing about orchids that people should know is that they are epiphytes, you know, so they grow on trees, they're lithophytes, they grow on rocks, they're also ground dwellers, so they really kind of encompass all those environments that come together, and it makes growing them really fun. Um, you know, the majority of what most people uh, around the world grow inside their homes really are epiphytes, we might grow them in pots, but they're they're more naturally grown, sort of attached to trees. Their their roots secure them to the tree, and then their leaves sort of drape down to take in the rain and everything else that washes down on them. Thanks for that lovely yeah. and detailed uh, description. <laughs> I think that that gives people um, some ways to imagine the the flowers we're talking about, which of course, as you said, are also so incredibly diverse. And yeah. part of that. Um, Diversity has led to this notion of orchid delirium, which really serves as a, uh, a central idea for your book, the ways that has arisen throughout history in lots of different ways. What is uh, orchid delirium? And in your introduction, uh, you describe some factors that ignited it in the Victorian era in sp yeah. uh, specifically. So it'd be, it'd be great to hear about that. Yeah. So, so in the wider book, I do talk about other countries that have also experienced orchidellarium as I as as we can really generally call it. So if orchidellarium most generally is just about like a a sort of insanity for orchids, a, a rage for orchids that sweeps a certain perhaps class of people, perhaps nation of people for a certain amount of time. Um, we can certainly include ancient China um, through a couple of different eras and feudal Japan. Um, as having a kind of sense of orchid delirium before Europe did. But for Europeans, the story really explodes, and really throughout America as well, very, very quickly, it really explodes in the mid-19th century. So 1850s, 1860s, 
you know, we kind of think of or orchid delirium as like a, a mental or emotional state, an obsession that you can't get rid of. But if we look more closely at the contexts there, there's a whole lot of other things, as you say, that are kind of coming together. So the Industrial Revolution is cranking at that time. And so what that means is it has created a much larger and wealthier class of people in several different European nations and in America who have more money and more time to spend, to spend on collecting orchids. Um, throughout the Industrial Revolution, um, across really all sectors, what we also get is incredible improvements in glass and steel technology. And so horticulturists take that glass and that steel and they build gigantic, gorgeous hothouses so that they can grow their tropical and subtropical flowers um, with a plum. Um, the printing press uh, is also cranking um, during that kind of mid-century, late-century moment. So that is spreading not only the printed word about exotic, alluring orchids, but also then pictures in either black or white or in color. Um, and then I would also add that there really is this, this artistic, romantic, and even specifically fashion-based um, obsession with greenery and with flowers and most especially orchids that you, you see this in women's dress styles in the way that they um, what they put in their hair and what they put on their dresses and what they attach to their purses um, as real or artificial flowers so in the book, I actually talk about um, French Empress Eugenie, who was married to Napoleon III. Um, and there's this much longer story about Eugenie, but she was really best known as the central 19th century fashion maven. And so she's really interested in tying together her love of the outdoors, specifically flowers, and fashion. So putting those two things together for French publics, and French is the height of haute couture <laughs> throughout um, the continent and across America as well. So that set Eugenie's fashion sense that she is, is creating with, she also has just stunningly gigantic um, brooches and cascading diamonds in the shapes of orchids um, that she is also popularizing at that time. And so that gets spread to the UK and to the US. And so I think it's kind of all of that stuff at once that that makes it um, a big orchid crazed time. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with environmental historian and author Erica Hannickel about her new book, Orchid Muse. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. We'd love to have you join our conversation today about all things orchid. We're going to continue digging up some of these uh, histories 
of people in orchids and pick up right where Erica left off with uh, the late 19th century in the United States. And you give us this vivid example of orchid delirium early in your book through the story of the first public orchid show in the United States in Manhattan's uh, Eden Musee, which is a dye museum in the Tenderloin District, which you describe as one of the most notorious neighborhoods in all of Gilded Age America. I'd love to have you read for us your description yeah. of that show, uh, Erica, and then we'll, we'll pick up and, and talk a little bit about the significance of that show after we hear your lovely description of, of what it was like to be there. Great, great. And so... Orchids were launched onto the wider American scene within a magpie's nest of what were considered oddities at the time. Our favorite flowers taking stage in an area of town also known as Satan's Circus. Orchids might at first seem an odd choice for the musee's promoters, pale competition for its tarot readings, serpentine dancers, fire eaters, sword swallowers, Japanese jugglers, and Viennese lady fencers. But remember that orchids, too, were novelties for Americans at the time, and what mesmerizing, delicate little monsters they were. As patrons inspected the flowers, they described seeing solemn owls and gaudy insects peering back at them. Still others were shocked to find wax-like human faces recalling dreams of elfland in the orchids' calices. The musée showcased operatic red and bright-colored orchids appearing like Wagner's dragons, and visitors reported that they were afraid that the mythical creatures would bellow forth ugly sounds at any moment. Perhaps it was not such a far jump from one type of, of spectacle to this floral one. Regardless, the musée's first week-long orchid show, mounted in March of 1887, was a colossal success. Whatever their familiarity with these exotic blooms beforehand, the New York Times wrote that visitors left the show confirmed monomaniacs on orchids in general. And why not? New York horticultural firm Seabricht and Wadley had turned the musée into a space of floral enchantment and brought with them several other professional plantsmen toting their own floral spectacles. Late winter visitors stepped off of the city's grimy sidewalks and into the luxuriant tropics throughout a specially designed orchid cave. The show offered banks of slipper orchids that gleamed like green polished moccasins, as well as velvet cups of fluted cattleyas. In other corners, light and airy blossoms waved in the air, creating a bright and natural scene. For the price of a 25 cent ticket, about $7 today, the orchid exhibition transported patrons into an emerald universe of cultivated delights. So author Erica Hanekel has just transported us here to the first <laughs> public uh, orchid show in the United States. What was the year here uh, for what you were just describing? 1887. 1887. And so we've uh, launched this long tradition of yep. orchid shows, uh, which continues to today. It just so happens that here in Madison, we have uh, Ulbricht Botanical Gardens hosting a special orchid escape exhibit starting next month. It's part of this long craze for orchids in the United States. Tell us a little bit more about the significance of that show that you just described. Yeah. Um, this was actually the very first chapter that I wrote for the book. Um, it's not the first chapter that appears in the book, but um, in a lot of ways, it inspired the rest 
of the book um, because it, it did come from a genuine question and most of the chapters do. And this question was, you know, I, I had known that the American Orchid Society, which is still a large and thriving orchid community, um, really one of the largest around the world, um, that they have their first show in the early 1920s. And so I knew that if the American Orchid Society was having a big giant public show in the 20s and they had a society organized around it that there must have been public orchid shows before then really to get a society up and up and running and so that was my question going in was like how and where can i find a large public orchid show like where where was this really done would it be in some massive greenhouse constructed for a world's fair would it be um, on a college campus, would it, you know, and, and oddly, very strangely finding it, um, at the Eden Musée, a dime museum, <laughs> and then realizing, um, that you have this amazing clash of cultures and maybe clash is the wrong word because people of all classes, um, came to this show. I mean, you have sort of special days set aside for the show's patrons, which who were really the wives of all the industrial magnates of late 19th century New York. So the Tiffany's, the Astors, the Vanderbilts, the Van Rensselaers, the, the list goes on and on and on. So all of those wives and daughters become the official patrons of these shows. Um, but they're very much rubbing elbows with anybody else who can afford a ticket to the Dime Museum, um, which is right around the corner from lots of bordellos, um, <laughs> uh, bars that are just rampaging through the night. Um, I mean, this is the time in history where, you know, New York City had to set up night courts to deal with the scores of sex trafficking cases that are happening like on these blocks, these specific blocks that um, these orchid shows are, are being housed in. And so it's, it's, such, a, it's such a strange um, and, and I think lovely window into what came before. You know, if we think about the late 19th century and early 20th century, as being much more sort of slick in terms of orchid appreciation was thought to be only for the very rich um, who could buy their gigantic greenhouses and, and, and hire gardeners year round to take care of them for them. Um, but it started out very differently. It, it starts out as um, part of, I mean, for as much sort of the freak show side of it, the other part that makes this a very interesting story in terms of class is that dime museums are also really the first museums in America to try to cater to women and children more specifically. Um, and so the rates are cheaper. You have storylines and kind of um, educational moments within those dime museums that are both teaching people about um, kind of great moments in national history, perhaps some um, natural history, um, 
international sort of kings and queens of yore. And so they've got, you know, they've got the whole wax museum thing going on. But then you've got um, live specimens, monkeys, <laughs> everything else under the sun um, kind of taking place here, too. You're listening to author Erica Hanekel talking about her new book, Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession in 15 Flowers. We'd love to hear from you here on A Public Affair. You can join our conversation by calling us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message A Public Affair on Facebook. Erica, let's follow up with that moment just a little bit more because you you draw out uh, in this section of the book uh, the ways that orchids, as you say, uh, bring out both the best and worst of the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era in the United States. Tell us a little bit more about those two sides of the orchid coin. Yeah. So there is a sense of um, amazing promise, certainly, that is coming with orchids. And the wealthy people that are putting their money and their efforts behind it um, do, you know, push orchids much further along <laughs> than they had been before, right? So we have amazing um, kind of revolutions in orchid hybridization across genera um really one of the one of the men of the brooklyn bridge family one of the roebling family the lesser one of the lesser knowns um charles roebling was an absolute orchid lover and so in a different chapter i kind of trace his life and we find that probably he didn't really want to be all that much of a steel magnate industrialist we we find that the details in between the lines really point to him loving and focusing on his gardens and his agricultural products and his orchids for as much time as he humanly can amidst horrific strike breaking and extraction from all over the world and and, and sort of all of these things and yet he is able to pay for multiple horticulturists who um, make great advancements in sort of the hybridization of orchids. And truthfully, some of those orchids are still incredibly popular today. And really all of them still appear in the lineage of popular um, orchid hybrids today. Um, I think, you know, another, you know, if, if we kind of span the long turn of that century. Um, if we go back to Frida Kahlo for a moment in the 20s and 30s. So she is there. She, she arrives in Detroit with husband D Diego Rivera. And she is trying to get pregnant. She's trying to um, establish herself as an artist, as Rivera is there um, to paint his gorgeous, huge mural um, of really um, Detroit automobile industry for Henry Ford. And really, Henry, it's, it's Edsel, it's, it's Henry Ford's son that hires him to do that um, in the um, Detroit Institute of Arts. And she 
very clearly, very quickly hates her time in America. And that's because she's really sort of thrust into needing to circulate within Detroit's high society ladies. And all of them are extreme capitalists. She and Diego are vehement communists at that time. Um, and she's dealing with loss. She's dealing with this, this like sense of homelessness. Um, she had already had a couple of failed pregnancies. And then she, you know, finds out that um, she's lost another baby and, and spends, I think, at least two weeks in a, in a Detroit hospital. And she starts drawing and painting um, very intensely in that scene. And during that time, Diego brings her a gigantic Catlia corsage. And so this gave me a moment to really talk about the moment of the Catlia corsage in American fashion, like what that means, who bought it, um, uh, why were they so prominent, um, and so we learned that through the 20s and 30s, like this is really the most popular sort of corsage. The orchid market completely shifts to just cranking out huge, perfect cattleyas. And so that actually radically narrows the focus of orchids that had been actually um, sort of proliferating and diversifying up until that point. Um, and so it, it offers a completely new, I think, take on her Henry Ford Hospital painting, which is, if people have seen the painting, and they can certainly see it in the book, but it's the painting where she is lying on the bed um, in, in a pool of blood. Henry Ford, um, the, the Ford plant is behind her. Everything else is just bleak and barren, and there's there's a lot of operating um, uh sort of implements um, around her and she's crying and and then there's just this gigantic wilted violet orchid and it sort of almost looks like a collapsed uterus or just you know it's it's something that was alive and now it's dead or, or it's you know it's it's into its senescence and so then piecing it together that this very clearly is the only major orchid that she had painted in her life. And it comes so early in her career. She very clearly took, um, it had to have been a choice <laughs> to avoid orchids because as she goes back to Mexico and lives almost the rest of her entire life in Mexico, um, she had to, she would have had to make the choice if she's going to paint flowers, but not paint orchids. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a very specific choice she's making for the rest of her life. Um, to do that. And I think that, you know, in part, it's about that loss, but it's also, I think, perhaps a political statement about all the high society women around her that were wearing gigantic Catlia corsages to every event, perhaps, you know, it's sort of this like artless, almost artless display of sexuality on one's chest. Um, that's also very expensive and is very fleeting. Um, you know, and so, so it is about class status kind of at its core, which probably horrified Frida more than anything. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a public affair and historian Erica Hennickel talking about her new book, Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession in 15 Flowers. If you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. 
Erica, so you gave us one example of a, a person who is maybe not normally included in the history of the human uh, obsession with and interaction with orchids, Frida Kahlo there, and you have many, many others in this book. And one of the really fascinating ones is uh, a person that um, many of us have never heard of who was involved in creating the global export market for vanilla, which you say is the only um, agricultural crop associated with orchids and the most labor-intensive agricultural crop on earth. So there's this fascinating history that you unfold here, the ways that orchids are entwined with colonialism and slavery. Tell us about the history and story of vanilla and who helped bring vanilla to us today. Yeah. So edible vanilla originated in Mexico um, with the Totonic people about 2,500 years ago. It's, I mean, it has a very, very deep history. Um, there are more species of vanilla. There's about 120 species, I believe, if that's currently up to date, but only about five or six of them are used for flavor or spice or fragrance. So vanilla is actually a vine. Um, it largely grows up trees um, in subtropical areas. And so vanilla was um, really a luxury item for a couple of thousand years. And then, you know, when it, when it hits um, Europe, it continues as a luxury item for more than 300 years. And so several European colonial states really transport, like in the early mid 19th century, they transport vanilla vines from Mexico throughout the Indian Ocean to really try to set up a much larger vanilla plantations and, and, and to get this sort of global market started. And they could get vanilla to grow and bloom very well, but they could not get it to pollinate. And so if it doesn't pollinate, then it doesn't produce those luscious, wonderfully scented vanilla pods that everybody wants to mix with chocolate and, um, and you know, smooth out flavors in the rest of, of dishes there. And that's because really the bee that um, pollinates the vanilla orchid did not travel across the oceans with the vines. Um, so vanilla jumps to Madagascar and uh, the island of Bourbon, which is today Réunion, or no, reverse that, sorry, it was, it was known as Bourbon earlier, today it's Réunion, um, and it becomes a major staple crop in the larger global spice trade. So all those other global spices that we see, like vanilla kind of shoots to the top of that list. And sadly, slavery really expands with it. Um, this, you know, it's a story that is not unlike um, Eli Whitney's cotton gin, right? When, when you make the ease of production, you know, easier um, for a hot global commodity, then the labor that goes into that actually grows 10,000 fold um, because you can grow it and sell it at a much lower cost. Um, 
So the person that I focus on within that story is actually um, an enslaved boy on the island of Reunion um, named Edmund Albius. And he was a teenager. Um, he had an owner who taught him some various sort of botanical and agricultural techniques. But it's very clear that Edmund was just very watchful himself and just grew to, to truthfully sort of put together his own knowledge and carry it sort of across plant families. We suspect that he probably noticed first how watermelon plants um, were cross-pollinated with each other and how that then carries on. And so as he's kind of like checking out vanilla flowers, he realizes that, you know, a bee can do this if it was if it was there, which they didn't have, but maybe he could also do it with a very small stick. And really, you know, sort of what I said at the top of the hour is that if you if you remove that sort of thin tissue that separates the stamen from the pistils, that it it will pollinate itself. And then that sort of brings on the vanilla pod. And then there's a much longer period of time in which the pod grows and then you double that by the drying of the pods and then and then getting it to where they need to go so it yeah it's incredibly labor intensive in the time we have left um you've done such a nice job of, of laying out some of these stories and there's so many more in the book that I wish we had time for. But in the time we have left, I think it's really important for us to touch on orchids today oh, as yeah. well and um, orchids' ecological role in uh, all over the world. As you said, they grow on all, all the continents except Antarctica and um, their conservation status. So what is the, the current status of orchids around the world? I know it's going to vary some on species, but give us a sense of, of how they're doing and initiatives that are being undertaken to conserve them, a few of which you mentioned towards the end of the book as well. Yeah, the last chapter is completely dedicated to orchid conservation. And of course, it comes up several times before that. So I think of orchids as really the canary in the coal mine in terms of the effects of climate change on ecosystems. And we can see that lots of groups, conservation groups, um, professional botanists, sort of everyone coming together will often use orchids as sort of stand-ins for millions of less showy plants. So because orchids are so alluring and have been so alluring um, that you can sort of use orchids as sort of synecdoche for the rest of the ecosystems that they kind of come from because of their beauty or charisma or however we want to describe it. Um, so that there's a really interesting kind of I would say interconnected group of people that are that are very focused on saving orchids, but also saving orchid environments. And that, of course, means the larger ecosystems from which they come from, too. So painters, naturalists, orchid societies and charities are doing amazing work to try and fundraise for these areas. Professional growers as well kind of come together. Um, and so the painters on that list um, I kind of highlight Madeline von Forster, who is um, a painter working in Germany for the past couple of decades. She's American originally, but she painted this gorgeous um, 
um, uh, painting of what she calls her orchid cabinet. And so it's essentially this mother nature figure surrounded by a bunch of orchids that are in danger. And so it, it it's alluring, but it's also sort of scary at the same time. And, and that was very much her point in that we have to kind of think twice about what we're going to do with these beautiful things at that time. You know, and so painters like von Forster are also staunch advocates for conservation. It's partially why they paint. And so people like her sort of donate portions of their sales to things like Tree Sisters or Save Vietnam's Wildlife or Wild Aid or even Sea Shepherds. Um, I was also able to interview um, an ecologist named Lou Jost, who is working in Ecuador. He's also a hobby artist. Um, he's really more, you know, of a professional scientist. But um, he is president of the Ecominga Foundation, which is a foundation that is dedicated to conservation in Ecuador, really all around sort of the edges of the Amazon um, in that area. There are similar programs in Rwanda, um, lots of other places. And so I think the emphasis here is that when we save orchids, it's very clear you know, that the best way to save them is always to save their ecosystems um, at the same time, because then you save the bees, the plants, the birds, the, the watershed, kind of everything together. Um, and so there have been lots of trusts coming together in the recent, you know, 10, last 10 to 15 years that are really wonderful places to donate if people are interested in trying to conserve orchids and the places that they come from. So the ones that I suggest and that Lou Jost um, specifically loves as well and that helps his Ecominga Foundation um, is the Orchid Conservation Alliance. There's also sort of larger groups, um, the World Land Trust, the Rainforest Trust, um, that really are about sort of amassing donations, finding then people and initiatives that have sort of already been set up on the ground and that are embedded with native peoples of those regions. Um, and then donating to them in sort of much larger quantities so that they can buy up whole regions of the Amazon. And so Jost really emphasizes that the importance here that he puts it, at least in the Amazon region, is that instead of sort of like one flat large area, what he likes to do is try to focus on buying vertically. So if he can buy up a mountainside with watersheds and with severe elevation changes, that means that you're conserving probably dozens more species of orchids and all other kinds of living beings because it, it crosses those. What that also hopefully helps do is that in the midst of climate change, maybe that also provides some security for orchids to move up or down a mountainside as climate and temperatures and rainfall shifts um, as we sort of hurtle into the future here. So is it fair to say, Erica, that um, orchids or wild orchids specifically, the threats they're facing are primarily habitat destruction 
and it, and and climate um is extraction still a force that's you know impacting wild orchids extraction is a force i i tend to believe from what I read that it's actually less of a force than more specific larger things like mining. Mining in different regions of Brazil specifically has really been a problem. There is also the kind of um, land conversion for cattle grazing and for agriculture, but but mostly for for cattle or sheep. is is really primary on the list. I you know I I would actually I would say climate change is is of course ever present, but it's sort of third on the list. Um, and and poaching is is a little lower down now, thankfully. Um, I think because there is a, a thriving legitimate market of orchid trade now that you know there there are people that that get orchids legitimately there are ways to cultivate you know the dust like tiny little orchid seeds um in much easier ways than of course the 19th century had um and so then those more popular orchids can be can be sold to larger publics and then hopefully also some of those profits go sort of right back into those areas where that orchid might be found in the just the few minutes we have left here, uh, I'd love to have you take us closer to home here in Wisconsin and tell us about how orchids are doing. I know that there are well-known places we're seeing orchids like the Ridges yeah. Sanctuary in Door County where a lot of people go, but you can see yeah. orchids all, all over Wisconsin. How are they doing and uh, where are they found and yeah. what are some of the places you like to tell people to go to see wild orchids? So I live in Ashland County, um, you know, up on Lake Superior. So I'm way up here and I spend a lot of time in Bayfield County as well. And truthfully, in May and June, almost any hike in the woods that I could take, I you can probably find some lady slippers um, and take some really beautiful um, images of them. I have also been extremely lucky to have a wonderful colleague in botany and biology here at Northland, Dr. Sarah Johnson, um, who focuses on native species and has an incredible um, kind of uh, research um, arena going where she and students are sort of labeling and, and quantifying how much we have left of different places and at, of different um, plants and and kind of where those things are going. And so Sarah has very lovingly, lovingly taken me to several bogs and fens in the region, which those are those are pretty well hidden because and, and that's it's a little dangerous to share locations often um, of those places. But if you are able to get to one, um, they're magical. You, you can walk on this like floating bog of sphagnum and there are at least three types of local carnivorous plants, just happy, <laughs> and three types of, of orchids because both those carnivorous plants and these types of orchids can live in very low um, low nutrient environments, sort of very clean water, but very low nutrient. Um, so there are lots of other sort of conservation efforts, of course, going on um, with orchids. Unfortunately, 
you know, it's, it's kind of hard, at least up here, to make lady slippers grow where they don't want to grow. It, it, it kind of, it's, it's a bit of a trick. Um, and I honestly have not tried it. Um, I, I have tried growing a couple of Chinese species in my backyard that can take it down to zone five or four. Um, cause those are a little bit easier, but I, I just haven't found a, a place, you know, in my own growing area where, where I can get our own native species. And it's just so easy to kind of go into the woods and, and kind of um, look around for them at the right time of year. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it with uh, a little inspiration for people to find their own orchid delirium here in Wisconsin, um, yeah. dreaming of springtime great. <laughs> at this point, right? Um, Erica Hennicle is the author of the brand new book, Orchid Muse, A History of Obsession in 15 Flowers. Any upcoming events or book-related announcements you want to share with us, Erica? There are lots of events. Um, I will be speaking at the Orchid Society of Minnesota's um, January meeting. I believe that's the third Saturday of January. if anyone is in Minneapolis. <laughs> um, I'll also be giving the keynote at the uh, Missouri Botanical Gardens first orchid show in three years after lockdown. Um, so that should be wildly fun. I should also say that if people are interested in purchasing the book right away, unfortunately the pub date has been shifted back to December 20th, but you can get it early if you go to honestdogbooks.com, they are the wonderful people up in Bayfield that threw me my launch party this weekend. And they have a few copies left, signed copies, and they can drop one in the mail to you and it'll get to you before the holidays. Great. Well, we'll link that on the website for you, Erica. Great. That's environmental historian and author Erica Hanickel. Thanks so much for being with us today, Erica. Thank you, Doug. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, news director, Sholly, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat on today's show. George Dreckman talks with author Rich Bogovich about his new book, Frank Grant, The Life of a Black Baseball Pioneer. We come and listen to support it. Six foot six, I'm up sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six, I'm up sea level. I grab the mic.